When Kathleen Winter got a last-minute invitation to sail the high Canadian Arctic, she didn't have to think twice. I got a phone call, would you like to go through the Northwest Passage next Saturday? So, of course, my answer was my bags are already packed. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how retracing the route of the doomed Franklin expedition on a Russian icebreaker can be a life-altering experience. For world traveler Richard Grant, there's no place like Holmes County, Mississippi. When the bustle of Manhattan started to wear on him, a visit to the Delta convinced him it was time for a change. We'll hear how he's adjusting to living in an old plantation farmhouse and what his new life in the birthplace of the blues shows him about America. Where you find um, the kind of outward appearance of piety, you, you find more raucous sinners at the same time. Plus, listeners share tales of making friends on the road. The adventure's just getting started. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He's explored uncharted rivers in Africa and escaped from bandits in the wilds of Mexico. Now, Richard Grant reports on what it's like to settle down on his own nine swampy acres in the Mississippi Delta. That's coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll also check in with your own stories of travel serendipity a little later in the hour at 877-333-RICK. But first, Montreal-based author Kathleen Winter was invited to join an expedition on a Russian icebreaker. Their goal was to retrace the doomed Arctic voyage of Lord John Franklin, who disappeared searching for the legendary Northwest Passage in 1845. She joins us now to tell us about the lasting impressions the Canadian Far North made on her. Kathleen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kathleen, what an exciting story you have to tell. Now, just before we get into your adventure, what is the Northwest Passage? And in your book, you call it the New Northwest Passage. What do we mean by that? The Northwest Passage is, was a fabled and, for a long time, um, elusive route whereby colonial Britain wanted to send explorers to get what they thought would be treasures from the Orient. Of course, we all know now it turned out to be a completely different thing. What's new about it, what I found to be new, was I thought um, when I was invited to go there, I was so excited, I thought it would be inhabited only by animals and Inuit. But in fact, I found a far different scenario. Let's talk about that. And when we, when we think about the Northwest Passage, it just seems inaccessible. But with global warming, suddenly it has become accessible. Is that your take? Yes. My daughter, the same year I went through there, came back with a new word from her high school geography class. And that word was cryosphere. And cryosphere is a scientific word meaning the frozen, remaining frozen parts of planet Earth. And what I found in the Northwest Passage was that that word really needs to be broken up into three words, cryosphere, because it's all melting. We could never have gone there a few years prior to 2010. By the same token, next year, there's supposed to be a gigantic cruise ship with a casino on board just barreling through there. So this little window of time when I went through on a small vessel and there was still lots of ice was a vanishing time. Hmm. So this really has some far-reaching ramifications. I mean, there'll be tourism, but there's also military and trade activity. It's Canadian territory, isn't it? So can you just give us a little primer on what's Canada's involvement and, and what does this mean for trade routes and, and uh, natural resources and, and the economic importance? 
Well, the first thing we saw when we reached the place called Pond Inlet, the very first stop in the so-called Northwest Passage, was the Canadian government, the Canadian Army, including the then Minister of Defence, Peter Mackay, clambering over the rocks in camouflage gear, doing cold-weather tactical exercises with representatives from armies of other Nordic countries. So that's who we saw first. That's a far cry from Inuit tribes people chasing seals. Well, they were there as well. And what had happened was that the army had overtaken their community center and some of their public buildings and was using the land for military purposes. Now, that has historically been the case in Canada for many, many years. I mean, in the 1950s, whole segments of more southerly Inuit population were moved by the government as human flagpoles just for the sole purposes of proclaiming sovereignty on that land, which is disputed land. Human flagpoles, yeah, like like just placing your flag to staking your claim. So Canada is making sure Canadian Inuit people are living there, so there's no question that this is Canadian territory? That is their plan, yes. My goodness. It has always been their plan. Now, there are Inuit people in Canada's north, but many of them have been moved farther north than their natural homes. And that happened in the 50s. So as long as this was frozen, it was sort of in a, in a cocoon. But now that it is not frozen, there's access to resources, access to trade routes, and um, related military concerns. Yes. When we went through, one thing that had just been made, and all the geologists on board were proud of it, was a beautiful new multicolored geological survey map outlining newly discovered minerals, sapphires, jewels, and minerals of all kinds in the Canadian far north. The geologist said to me, well, we've used Inuit people to help us find these things. And he told me a story about two trapper hunters who said, we noticed blue, shiny stuff winking in the ground, and this was sapphires. So there's this continual use of Inuit lore and expertise by science and government to not only proclaim sovereignty, but to get wealth. Wow, this is happening in our own generation. This is a a major change in a lot of ways. Author Kathleen Winters, our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She writes about her Arctic discoveries in her latest book. It's called Boundless, Tracing Land and Dream in a New Northwest Passage. You'll find a link to her book in this week's show details in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Kathleen, that's all the big... uh, geopolitical trade kind of stuff, but there's a more intimate look, and that's what you had on this Russian icebreaker. Now, tell us about your experience as what I understand is writer-in-residence on this Russian icebreaker, and why would they invite a, a Canadian novelist to sail with them on the new Northwest Passage? This boat was chartered by a Canadian family-run company that likes to take people through for educational purposes and also work with scientists and kind of help to monitor the ongoing changing landscape up there. I really lucked in because they like to have a writer-in-residence on board just to be able to sort of synthesize the the findings of all of these different experts. There are marine mammal uh, experts, geologists, there are historians, and also the passengers. There was a 100 passengers many American people, a lot of Canadians, a few Europeans, who just want to see this land that really hardly anybody has seen. So I was lucky because they had somebody and the person couldn't go. So 
I got a phone call one Saturday morning. Would you like to go through the Northwest Passage next Saturday? So, of course, <laughs> my answer was my bags are already packed. Wow. Now, this is a Russian ship. There's 100 people on board. It sounds like kind of an international community. Was, was Russian the, the language of the ship? No. The crew was another 100 people, and they are mostly from the Philippines. So if I had my time back or if I got invited again, that would be another story. You know, what mm -hmm. goes on below decks yes. with the Philippine crew, because they are on this chartered ship, not for the couple of weeks. In our case, it was almost three weeks. But they are on there for almost a whole year. They don't see their families. They right. live on this ship. That's a good um, excuse for a fascinating story. I've thought that every time I'm on a cruise ship is, is downstairs. I remember a, oh, a, yeah. a, a man on a cruise ship once told me, you know, there's 3,000 tourists on the ship and 1,500 crew, and the, the busiest bar in the whole ship is down in the, in the bilge where, where none of the tourists go. Right. We went to a party with the crew. They had a disco, and I'll tell you, that was a different atmosphere from above. On, yeah. I bet. That's no man's land. Most of us can't get down there. We're talking with Kathleen Winter. Her book is Boundless, telling the story of her trip across the new Northwest Passage. How many days was the trip altogether? It was supposed to be 14 days, but it ended up being longer because we encountered some problems. What were the problems? Well, on the second last day, we heard an earth-shattering long-lasting, deafening, crunching sound. The ship shuddered to a catastrophic halt, and we were grounded on an uncharted rock and had to wait to be rescued by the Canadian Coast Guard. Mm. You wrote about that vividly in, in your book, and I like the way you wrote about when you walk on the land, you feel connected to the earth, one with the earth. Yes, this sensation was the reason I wrote the book. All of the other things are interesting, they're fascinating, they're topical, and they're important. But the reason that I wrote the book was that when I went on the land, and we did walk for miles on the land, and you could go and be quite alone on the land as long as you stayed within the gun perimeter and the security um, against bears. The land in the north, I knew from being in Labrador before, as a longtime Newfoundland resident, that the land has a magnetic power. It's as if the land is magnetizing you. You, you. you feel energy coming off it, and there's an attraction. But what I felt in the far north was a much more powerful and spiritual message. And I hesitated in writing it because it's hard to talk about these things in a way that people find believable. But I was on the land by myself, again, you know, after many hours and many days. And the land spoke to me and said, there is no other. And what it meant to me, I knew this in a flash all through my body, was that the binary way of looking at things from the inside of ourselves at the outside was not the way consciousness works in the far north. What it was was as if my own consciousness and the consciousness of a living, sentient landscape became part of the same aliveness. Whoa. You probably have to walk on a barren piece of land with a big sky overhead and, and the specter of global warming and the ship in the distance and, and you to be solitary to, to feel that. I was not expecting it. It hit me with a wallop. And you know the light in the far north is a very special kind of glowing blue 
ongoing light, I felt with great certainty that the North was holding light and wisdom for the rest of the planet, and that what it was saying was that we have a little bit of time to listen to the land instead of to our own repeated messages about profit and gain and bottom line. We have a little bit of time left to actually listen to the land, and it is an Aboriginal thing. It is an Inuit thing. They have been listening to this all along. It's the crux of what they have been trying to tell the colonizers and continue to try to tell us all along. And they didn't make it up. The land told it to them. I'm convinced of that. That's what my travel through the North told me. Kathleen Winter, thank you so much for sharing your experience and the the revelation that comes to a thoughtful traveler when they go to the edge and listen to what the land is telling them and what their heart's telling them. The book Boundless, Tracing Land and Dream in a New Northwest Passage. Thanks, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. Since we recorded our interview with Kathleen Winter, a luxury cruise ship made news, taking more than a 1,000 passengers through the high Arctic summer, from Seward, Alaska, across Arctic Canada and Greenland to New York. But it appears they won't be offering this route again next year. Up next, Richard Grant tells us what it was like to relocate from New York City to the Mississippi Delta. We're at 877-333-RICK. Richard Grant describes himself as a misfit Englishman with an American passport. And he's no stranger to rough travels and culture shock. He figures moving from a tiny apartment in lower Manhattan to a sprawling plantation farmhouse in backwoods Mississippi is about as big a culture change as you're likely to make here in the United States. He joins us now from the Mississippi Public Broadcasting Studios in Jackson to tell us about his new life, which he documents in his captivating book called Dispatches from Pluto. Richard, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, great to be back, Rick. You're an Englishman who's lived in New York City, and you decided to get a change of scenes, and you went down into swamp country in the Mississippi Delta. Why? I just fell in love with the property down there. I went down there for a picnic, and I ended up buying a house in the middle of nowhere just (laughs) because I was so struck by the surroundings and the incredibly cheap price. So this is an old plantation house, I understand. Yeah, it was an old 1908 plantation house with a lovely porch on nine acres by the Yazoo River. So what does something like that cost, if you know where to look? Well under $150,000, I'll tell you that. Wow, nine acres? Yeah, with free access to about 9,000 acres of farms and woodlands. So what lives on that land other than human beings? Well, a lot of cotton plants, but also just teeming with wildlife. There's alligators in the river. Very occasionally you'd see alligators walking across the fields, which is a, which is a sight to see. Lots of deer, which I ended up learning how to hunt for meat. Possums, raccoons, coyotes, a very occasional sign of a bear, turtles, immense clouds of mosquitoes and other biting insects. (laughs) Quite a variety of wildlife, big and little. Yeah, I mean, it's just teeming. It's an incredibly rich ecosystem. And Pluto is, is sort of your town nearby. Describe Pluto to us. I wouldn't quite grace it with the word town. It's a community of related family members. I think on a good day, its population might be nine. It's essentially Pluto is the name of the plantation that they 
used to grow cotton on now grow a mixture of cotton and soybeans and corn and catfish. You know, it sounds, frankly, pretty bleak. I mean, talk about a contrast going from New York City where the there's a vibrancy and a cultural sort of wonderland to a place where you're uh, worrying about bugs and shooting raccoons. Uh, what kind of adjustment did you have going from New York to Pluto? First of all, I was just sort of breathed a huge sigh of relief. Um, I do quite well in remote places. I found the environment very vibrant. Mm-hmm. I've spent a lot of time just learning the birds and the trees and the plants and the wildlife. And then gradually started to um, get to know my neighbors and get to know the culture of the Delta, which is it's curious because it's, it's a very American culture, but it's very different from the rest of America. Yeah, you, you call it in your book, as a matter of fact, uh, the most American place on earth. Uh, what, what do you mean yeah, by that? Yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of like where American popular music all was rooted. This is where like a lot of America's great authors come from. And this is where free enterprise, kind of rugged individualism sort of reaches a, a kind of extreme. Okay. And as an Englishman, you could recognize that. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I've been coming to Mississippi for about 10 years before I moved mm-hmm. there, and I always really liked it. I didn't know the Delta. I would always go to Oxford, Mississippi, William Faulkner's mm-hmm. old town, where where I had friends, and I was always I always felt charmed by Mississippi. I always enjoyed eating here and drinking here and listening to the stories that people told here. It had been in my mind to move here for a while, and then I went down for a picnic on Pluto and ended up suddenly and recklessly buying this house. New Yorkers, to me, I mean, I, I'm pretty high energy, and when I go to New York, I feel like a relative sloth. And when I listen to you talk, you don't talk with the energy and the intensity of a New Yorker. You sound a little more laid back. Have you actually, has your tempo of life changed since you moved to Mississippi? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a, a little less frenzied and panicked and um, hurried, I guess. I suppose my, my tempo is, uh, you know, I'm, it's a country tempo. I'm up with the dawn, and um, mm-hmm. i pay close attention to what's going around me in terms of looking at the ground for snakes and um, looking in the trees for birds and that kind of thing. I love your description of how you and your girlfriend Mariah would eat. You'd shoot deer and let me just read a paragraph. I just love this paragraph. The meat wasn't gamey at all. It was rich and delicate, exquisitely delicious. The doe had fed to her heart's content on clover, henbit, acorns, wild plums, corn, soybeans, and grasses. She had led an incomparably better life than any factory-farmed animal, and now she had become meat. The wolves and panthers are gone now, and the humans hunted with high-powered rifles instead of homemade bows and arrows, but the deer's position in the food chain had not changed over the millennia. If she had reached old age, her teeth would have worn away, and she would have starved to death. Coyotes and vultures would have eaten her. Instead, she died instantly, provided us with meat for the next nine months, and one meal that we'd never forget. That is such a beautiful, holistic, comfortable way to adapt to the culture, it seems like, and it's just poetic at the same time. And I'd never done any hunting before I moved there, and I had, in fact, been quite anti-hunting. I lived in, When I lived in Arizona, I was kind of sort of angry and upset by hunting because it seemed like the, the animals were having such a hard time getting by on such a sparse amount of grazing. That really changed when I when I got to the Delta because the populations were so rich and overflowing. There was deer all over the place, and rather than drive twenty five miles to a supermarket and buy some not very good factory farm meat, I decided to start eating the deer. And of course, 
One big deal lasts a long time. Yeah, that's good. And you must learn, I'm sure you learned some of the local techniques for living off the land and, and so on. I, uh, just uh, another little quote from the book. While the meat was resting, Mariah dressed the lettuce with salt, olive oil, and lemon juice and made a sauce of sour cream, horseradish, lemon zest, and parsley. I sliced the tenderloin into round discs and poured us both a glass of good red wine and we gave thanks to the deer. That's just good living. That's just good back-to-basics living. It's sort of a dream come true for a lot of New Yorkers, I would think. Yeah, it's, there's something about getting meat honestly, you know. Um, mm. It changes your relationship to what you eat if you've spent some time hunting the animal, killing mm-hmm. the animal, skinning yeah. the animal, gutting the animal, cooking the meat yourself. It makes a meal into something much more profound. One of the reviews of Richard Grant's book, Dispatches from Pluto, calls it provocative in the best kind of way. There's more about his books and documentaries on his website. That's richardgrant.us. Our phone number at Travel with Rick Steves is 877-333-7425. And Barb in Chicago is on the line with a question for Richard. Hi, Barb. I'd like to know, Richard, what was your biggest misconception about the South before you moved there? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I guess the, uh, you know, the question of race and race relations is much more complicated at least in the Mississippi Delta, than I, than I was prepared for. Yeah, how so? That's an interesting issue. Well, right where I was in Pluto, there was a black family and a white family that had been living together and had become very close, but it was not an equal relationship. The white people had the power and the money, and the black family worked for the white family, but they'd become very close to the extent where the white family named their children after members of the black family, which is not the sort of thing you expect to find in Mississippi. How were you treated as a British incoming resident? People were incredibly hospitable and friendly to me and my girlfriend. Was there a kind of a sense sensitivity you needed to be mindful of when you're thinking of uh, the history of you know, race problems and segregation? I mean, I would sort of tread carefully around those issues, you know. I'm very wary about jumping to judgments in places that I'm new to and don't understand, and that's kind of something I learned traveling in Latin America and Africa and the Caribbean. I always feel like my first job is to understand the place I'm in before even beginning to cast a judgment on it. I could kind of imagine you in a ramshackle blues bar being the only white guy there and... uh kind of gingerly figuring out what's the best way to be part of this scene. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it was difficult to get to know the black culture in that county because this history of segregation was there and the two communities sort of on the whole lived separately. But then you would find these exceptions to the rule, like the the two families I just mentioned. And I ended up becoming friends with one of the black guys from that family. And because I was a foreigner... He could take me into the black community as a kind of novelty item. That made it easier for me to get to know people in that community. So you had an advantage because you were coming in from outside of America, which in some sense already had the lines drawn. Yeah, I was just slightly harder to pigeonhole. You know, <laughs> I, did, I came with less baggage attached. So what's it like? Can you, did you enjoy yourself in the, in the hang, local hangouts? And what was it like? Uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depended on the hangout and it depended on the night. So what's a good night? I like a lot of different kinds of music, but I I do enjoy the blues, and it was always a good time down at um, 
Jimmy Duck Holmes' juke joint, the Blue Front Cafe in Bentonia. He's an amazing blues player that not many people know outside Mississippi. Hmm. So kind of paint a picture, what was it like there? Okay, you got kind of like a concrete floor and an old oil drum that's converted into a wood-burning stove. And the furniture's just made out of two-by-fours painted blue. And there's a little stage at the end of the room where the musicians go. And they only sell beer and cigarettes. It's smoky. And people bring in their own liquor. On a good night, there's, there's lots of dancing and fun to be had. Wow, that must be quite a fascinating... And, and to be uh, over time, I mean, once you visit it a few times, they realize you're not just a gawky tourist, but you're a neighbor. Exactly. That, that makes a difference, too. Well, they welcome tourists on the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, let, me, let, let me just also say to Bob, I just underestimated Southern hospitality. Let, let me just give an example. I moved in. I'm a foreigner. Like My girlfriend's from Arizona, which may, she may as well be a foreigner in the Mississippi Delta. And, uh, you know, our neighbors came, drove over to meet us. We come from different ends of the political spectrum. They were, you know right-wing Christian Republicans. They took one look at our furniture and they, they came back two days later with a truck piled up with beds, with sofas and couches, with a kitchen table and chairs, with a rug. And they said, oh, you, you're short of furniture. Just just have this stuff for as long as you need it. It's on us. Wow. And the other neighbor came by with a cord of cut firewood, said, here, you're going to need this in the winter. And then the family that brought us the furniture, they just basically took us in like family. Uh, we now have a, a two-month-old daughter, and, and that woman is, is her grandmother. Hmm. Yeah, don't, don't, never underestimate Southern hospitality. It's, it's, it's quite something. Yeah, that means you have a reputation of Southern hospitality, but then you find yourself in probably perhaps the poorest county in America in a situation where you're the minority, and uh, you still find that, that warmth probably in a different way than you would in a city in the South. Yeah, I mean, this is rural hospitality. I mean, um, you wouldn't find the same thing in Jackson. In a place like that, you just, you know, everyone just has to operate on a human level. And, you know, our, our political differences became completely irrelevant over time. Richard Grant's our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His book is Dispatches from Pluto. Richard uses his outsider's honesty and wry sense of humor in his look at life on the Delta. He deals with issues as far-ranging as America's festering racial divide to the benefits of swamp-to-table dining. So what's a cultural insight that you gain from living in in Mississippi, especially, you know, in a rural, poor community? What's a cultural insight that people in more affluent and urban settings might benefit from? I mean, at the risk of sounding really obvious, um connection to the land to grow and hunt and catch what you eat you hear a lot of talk about that in the city but it's a little different when you you see the deer walking past your house that you're gonna you're gonna eat for the next nine months how has your diet changed then after this experience well i just eat a lot more wild meat i guess and buy a lot less beef and pork so if you look in my freezer you'd see deer meat and duck meat and some dove breasts uh, some bullfrog. Uh, bullfrog? Else? What's that like? You have to know how to cook it right. It needs a little, little marinating. And how do you learn how to cook it? Is that where you call on your neighbors? Yeah, I mean, my friend Martha Foos is a cookbook writer. She's from Pluto. It was her father's house that I bought. Hmm. Uh, so she's, she's an invaluable resource. 
And she was really one of my great guides to the Delta. She has a kind of off-kilter take on things. Off-kilter how? Oh, she enjoys the eccentricities of the Delta, shall we say. Such as? Of which there are many. There's a sort of a bizarre streak to life in the Delta. I meet a lot of women whose sort of handbags rattling with strange pills and conspiracy theorists. We had a guy who, um, who died twice, according to the newspapers. He was taken to the morticians, pronounced dead, and he came back to life. And this was, this was hailed as a, as a miracle. A lot of religious fervor. You almost start getting into that magical realism territory that, that one encounters in Gabriel Garcia Marquez. There's, there's miracles going on, there's dark plots. The devil has, is doing a lot of work out there. Things get kind of overheated and fevered in a hurry. Well, sitting on your back porch with a couple of alligators slowly walking by and the sky filled with exotic birds, you know, you're living in a world where magical realism is easier to embrace. Yeah, I mean, we can't discount the kind of fervent religiosity of Mississippi either. That that really helps to sort of unmoor things from reality. In a so sense. you find that people are generally more religious. It's the most religious state in the in the union. They so say you, you can go to a bar and people are just drunk and playing cards and cussing and they're more religious. Well, it makes fun more fun, right? <laughs> yeah, that's if you, if you get to react against, uh, that's you got, true. You got something to react against. It, it it makes sin all the more appealing. So yeah, well, I think where, where you find um, the kind of outward appearance of piety, you you find more raucous sinners at the at the same time. It's kind of a raw world that you're in when you're in the in the swamp, and uh, I think a, a huge difference is just the value of time, isn't it? I mean, when you're in New York, you got a good friend, and you want to get together. They'll see if they can work you in. But I would imagine in Pluto, people have time; they can spend time with you. They can give you time. That's surprisingly busy, though. I mean, I was I felt extremely busy a lot of the time, just trying to sort of keep the vegetation at bay and the rodents at bay, and Got to cut that grass, otherwise the snakes will get into it. Got, got to hack back the, that poison ivy. Got to weed the garden. Got to trap that rat that's gnawing away at the inside of the walls. You know, there must be something fun about just being steep on the learning curve of, of coming out of a big urban environment and having to get back to basics and survival. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been a travel writer and, and a journalist. I, I like that process of arriving stupid in a place yeah. and the journey of, of knowledge that you go on sort of peeling back the onion layers and there's a lot of layers in in the Mississippi Delta it's everything feels sort of tangled like the family roots and trees go deep and tangled and it's difficult to make sense of this is uh, Travel with Rick Steves we've been talking with Richard Grant his book is Dispatches from Pluto Lost and Found in the Mississippi Delta Richard can you just close it off with uh, just sort of a, an assessment of uh, if you're a different person in any way than if you would have stayed with your girlfriend Mariah in New York City, yeah, Mississippi, Mississippi changed me for the for the better. I think um, I look back at my my former self as being much more narrow-minded and picky and more easily dissatisfied, more judgmental about people. Um, I think there's a tendency if, if you kind of like live in a in a liberal bubble, for example, of defining people by their political opinions or you know all republicans are bad you know and i just yeah i just lost a lot of my judgmentalism which i think is healthy for anybody fascinating thank you so much for writing this book and 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 sharing a little bit about 
Becoming at Home in the Mississippi Delta. Richard Grant, the book is Dispatches from Pluto. Best wishes, Richard. All right, Rick, I like your style. Keep going. Thank you. You too. Up next, let's hear about the people you've met in your travels. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. What kinds of people have added a touch of serendipity to your travels? Let's open up the phone lines now at 877-333-7425 to hear what kinds of encounters our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have to report from their own adventures around the world. Megan's calling in from Halifax in Nova Scotia. Megan, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you, Rick? Doing good. Have you had some serendipity in your travels? I sure have. I was calling to tell you about the time I was driving through the eastern Slovakian Tatra Mountains, Hmm. actually, because I left my wallet on top of a toilet seat, actually, at a gas station high up in the mountains. And the scenery was so beautiful. What happened is my cousin and I ended up driving away from the gas station For hours and hours, we were on our way to Prague. She was to go back to the airport to Canada, and I was going to the Ukraine. And all of a sudden, hours later, I realized that I had left this wallet at this gas station on top of the toilet. (laughs) The Tatras is in Slovakia, right? That's a way, it's east of Prague, east of the Czech Republic, and there's not a lot of tourists that go through there, at least not a lot of Canadians and Americans. Well, that's the thing. We, uh, We found ourselves lost to begin with, so we had no idea how to get back and to retrieve my wallet. The only thing is, luckily, I remembered the name of the gas station, and I had some knowledge of the Polish language. So once in Prague, I found a family restaurant, and I asked if I could find a phone book, and because the countries are close together, they actually managed to hook me up with the, with the phone book, and I was able to find the gas station. And so what I did is I called, and the owner of the gas station happened to be leaving on a train to Germany, that night, and he said, well, I can stop at the Prague train station and drop off your wallet through the door on my way to Germany. So I was in luck, I thought, because there was no way that we were going to make it back after that. It was far too far to go back, and we definitely would have gotten lost. So I was super thankful because he actually ended up meeting me the next morning at the Prague train station. We waited at the station at the platform. We were very on edge. But sure enough, he jumped off the train, handed me my wallet back, and I couldn't thank him enough uh, using my Polish, which is similar to Slovakian, and I gave him a reward, uh, which was some of the euros that I had in my wallet because I was so relieved that they were still there. Oh, man. So he just, you were very lucky. He just happened to be traveling through Prague anyways. He didn't miss his train in Prague. You were just on the platform, and he gave you your wallet. Exactly. And he was coming from this tiny village high in the Tatras, And it just so happened that he would be passing through Prague the very Mm. same day as me and would be able to hop off the train during his connection there and hop back on to go to Germany. I've heard so many stories about how people have forgotten their wallet or their money belt or or their uh, passport or something like that, and people bail them out. And I I just think it really, you know, it just makes you feel good about the kindness of strangers when you're far away from home. 
Absolutely. And all my cards and all my money and everything was in there, which is also, I learned a lesson, I think, as well, because yeah. I could have not been so lucky for sure. Well, that's one thing you learn. And what I like to do is remember to have, uh, have your essential stuff that you don't need ready access to stowed a little more deeply and tied securely to your body or, or to your big bag or something like that. And then in your pocket or in your wallet or your purse, you've got enough to get you going for the day. But that's the thing that's most likely to get lost or stolen is what you've got with you out when you're out and about. And, uh, I think we need to remember that. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, it was a good lesson to learn. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks. Thanks thanks so much. Happy travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. William's on the line from Miami in Florida. William, thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. How's it going? It's going very good. Do you have some uh, reports on how serendipity has sort of spiced up your travel memories? Well, yeah. Usually, when I go to Europe, I usually go for about 12 days. And uh, about halfway through, I need to do laundry. So, you know, instead of paying the usurious amounts, uh, you know, the hotels charge, I just find out what the laundromats are. I did that in Prague about five years ago, and uh, I happened to run into an, an expat uh, Czech guy who's, um, he left the uh, Czech Republic in 68 when the Russians came in and went to London and lived there. And he just came back, you know, he's just coming back to visit his family. So, I luckily, you know, when our, when our clothes were washing, he gave me the whole lowdown on the on the Soviet era, plus when the Soviets got kicked out and when they did the Velvet Divorce. And when when very, Czechoslovakia split between Czech Republic and Yeah, between that and Slovakia. Slovakia. He, was, right. he was very proud about that. He told me, he goes, we got the best in the deal. He said, Slovakia got all the gypsies. Oh, no. Well, you get the candid truth what the local people think when you are hanging out in the laundromat. And I, I find, you know, you're right on with that observation. Anywhere in Europe, uh, even if you can afford to have the hotel do the laundry, if you're looking to meet people... There are little venues where people are just unguarded and relaxed. They've got time to kill, and it's a great chance to strike up a conversation. Uh, I used a washing machine in Paris that broke down, and everybody rushed over to help me. Yeah. It was, you know, <laughs> such, a, such a great deal. But this guy, you know, in, in Prague, he was just wonderful. He, you know, he, like I say, he gave me the lowdown of the, you know, the Soviet era. And he wasn't all, you know, he wasn't dumping on the Soviets at all. You know, he said, well, you see, we got, at least we got to learn Russian. He said it's a beautiful language. And, uh... Yeah. He said, you know, this is bad stuff, but, uh, you know, he said, what are you going to do with it? And he walked with me to the subway station. I had to, you know, I had to ask him, I said, I said, why are these subways sunk so down low into the ground? I mean, those things, you know, you have to go down like two stories to get to the train. Mm-hmm. He said, well, the because they told us you capitalists were going to come over and bomb us, so these were, you know, for nuclear war. <laughs> That's what you find in, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow also, is these bomb-hardened, amazing, kind of luxurious subway stations that are way buried deep. And you realize, yeah, that was part of their thinking, was they, they doubled as bomb shelters. Yep, last year in Salzburg, I had the same thing. You know, the lady there was very helpful to me. You know, and it is, I see where some people might be intimidated because everything, you know, the instructions are in a different language and everything mm-hmm. like that. But it's pretty easy to figure out. Oh, you know? yeah. In fact, pop a couple of euros in and. And, and be lost. Uh, you know, make a mistake. Go there and forget your detergent. And it gives you an excuse to ask uh, somebody who's sitting at the next chair, excuse me, do you speak English? Uh, I need some change. Or how do you get some detergent? And you may find yourself uh, sharing a cup of coffee across the street with them and, and trading stories about the, the good old days. Hey, I think you, you it sounds like you could write a little book called uh, Tales from the Laundromats. Well, like I say, it's always a 12-day thing, and uh, yeah. I'm always running to close halfway through, so you got to go somewhere. Well, good for you, William. You're traveling clean, and you're making a lot of friends as you go. Happy travels. And that and way, yeah, and that way you don't have to drag a bunch of clothes with you anyway. That's a good idea. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Take care. Have bye. A good one. When you find life is becoming a bit too predictable... 
If you can find a way to get out and travel a bit, you're sure to come back with some interesting stories about the people you met along the way. Stories that'll stick with you for years to come. We're checking in with listeners right now at 877-333-RIC with travel reports of serendipity on the road. Roy's on the line from Cheyenne in Wyoming. Hi, Roy. Yeah, hi. And uh, I wanted to tell you what happened to me in 2000. Uh, Me and my friend were flying back from London, England, and we landed at the airport in St. Louis, Lambert, I think. And what happened is that I started doing some exercise walking because we had a layover, and I was just happy-go-lucky just doing it. And I heard somebody say Krispy Kreme donuts out of the crowd of people. And (laughs) what happened is I had never had them before, but I'd heard all these things about Krispy Kremes, and I'd always wanted them, but we didn't live anywhere near Krispy Kreme in Wyoming. So all of a sudden I think, well, there has to be a Krispy Kreme in the airport. So I went all over the terminal looking for it because we had some time. But I couldn't find it. So I walked back dejected towards the gate. And then I see this guy with a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. And I go, hey, where'd you get those Krispy Kreme donuts? Did you get them here? Where did I get them? And he's like, oh, I didn't get them here. And he kind of said it kind of tersely. And, he, and I was like, okay, well, whatever. So I turned around dejected and walk off. And the next thing I know, I hear him say, hey, hey. And I turned around and he goes, would you like these? And I go, what? <laughs> you want to give me these? There are like 12 of them, a big Krispy Kreme donuts. And he goes, yeah, that's fine. They're cold and everything, but if you want them, you can have them. And I thought, I just have to take these. And so, and they were fine. They tasted good. And when I was on the plane, uh, people were joking, and the flight attendant was trying to get them. And <laughs> all that. But I think that was a great story because it's like, you know, that if you really want something, I guess you can get it if you really look. And plus, <laughs> fellow travelers will always take care of you. People you know, take care of you, Roy. Care. That almost sounds like some sort of a biblical story, except they didn't have Krispy Kreme donuts 2,000 years ago. But <laughs> I remember yeah. I remember uh, almost that long ago when I was a kid, I was uh, traveling with my grandparents in Norway, and they were uh, wanting to go to the old country, and they were uncomfortable driving because they were a little older. So I went along as their driver, and I'd stayed in youth hostels, and they'd stay in the nice hotels just because I wanted some company. But I remember my grandpa was always needing a cup of coffee like a good Norwegian. And sometimes we're in the middle of nowhere, uh, and there was just certainly no Krispy Kreme donuts, but there was no coffee even. So he would just stop, and it made me nervous, but he would go up and knock on a perfect stranger's door in the middle of Norway, and he'd say, excuse me, do you know where I can get a good cup of coffee? And he knew full well the person would say, you know, I've got the coffee on right here. Why don't you come on in and have a cup? And time after time, it was almost like a daily routine. My grandpa would knock on a stranger's door, ask where he can buy a cup of coffee, and we'd be invited in. And it was the greatest way to meet these people in these remote little corners of Norway, all because my grandpa had the nerve, just like you, to say, hey, where can I get a donut? Right, and that's the same thing just like when you're having trouble with directions, which I do often when I travel. I'll always go to the locals and ask them, even if I have to do it every other block. Uh, yeah. And you get to talk to them, and usually somebody yeah. will help you. You know, I, sometimes I just, even if I'm not lost, I'll ask a stranger for a direction just because I want to see the twinkle in their eye and hear their voice and connect with somebody. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice thing to know how to say, excuse me, where is this? Hey, Roy, thanks so much, and uh, next time I see somebody with some Krispy Kreme donuts in an airport, I'll think of you. Okay, well, thank you, Rick, and uh, keep up the good work, and thank you for inspiring us to, to not be afraid to travel off the beaten path. You bet. Thanks, Roy, in Wyoming. Okay, goodbye. Bye now. Craig's calling in from Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Rick, it's great to be here. Thank you. Do you have some serendipity to share that you've had in your travel experience? Yeah, it was 21 years ago. I was in Dublin, Ireland, 
It was my first trip to Europe. I had recently completed a master's degree in English literature, decided to take a literary tour of Dublin. It left back then from Bewley's Cafe on Grafton Street. Now, my experience with the literary pub crawls is you get two or three actors, and they meet you at a pub, and they introduce themselves, and everybody has a beer, and they do a little vignette from a play or some famous Irish literature there. And then you walk to another place, and they give you a little context, and they do another snippet from uh, great Irish literature, and it becomes a, a nice evening. Was that your experience? Yeah, there were two actors, and I remember they did a fabulous vignette from Waiting for Godot. Right. They also recited poetry, and we went to four or five bars. And they do the same thing in Edinburgh, by the way, which is very nice, because the Scots have their literary heritage as well, with uh, Scott and Burns and Stevenson. Yeah. I recommend any of your listeners that they go to the Irish Writers Museum in Dublin. Yeah. There's also a Writers Museum in Edinburgh. I've been to both of them. Oh, yeah, they're both great. And by the way, if you're into the literary pub crawl, you might want to follow it up with the music pub crawl. And just with the same sort of format as the literary, when you've got two or three, you don't have a whole band because it would cost too much, but you've got two or three musicians. They're very um, informative and, and entertaining, and they'll demonstrate the different instruments, including the bodrum, the wonderful drum that comes with the Irish traditional music. Uh, you'll have a beer, and uh, you'll uh, hear a demonstration, and then you go to another pub, and you have a little fun, you have a beer, and you get another demonstration and some more music. And, you know, after three or four stops and, and three or four beers, pretty soon everybody on the, on the tour is very good friends. It's one of the best ways to meet other travelers is to take these uh, literary or musical uh, pub crawls. Yeah, we were seeing some of the sites, such as Wilde's birthplace, Samuel Beckett's favorite drinking hole, Bram Stoker's residence, and there's a group of Germans, other Europeans, and one American. That was me. There's this woman from the group of Germans. She would sidle up, talk to me a little bit, sidle back, sidle up, sidle back, and the tour ended in Bailey's. This is three pints later, and you've got this German woman saddling up and saddling yeah. back each stop. It sounds interesting. And it ended at Bailey's, which is a pub, and that it ended there because it was mentioned in James Joyce's Ulysses. We ended up talking for two hours with the person who led the tour, who's a professor at Trinity College, and yes. I asked the German woman if she wanted to meet me later that evening for dinner. So I can say I've had a date in a foreign country. <laughs> Good move, Craig. <laughs> We had a dinner. The woman's name was Petra. We ended up spending a little bit more than a week together. We headed out to the west of Ireland to a town called Listoon Varna, County Clare, and I proposed to her in a pub. Wait a minute. You met her, and a week later you proposed to this German woman? Yep. And that was over 20 years ago? 21 years ago, yeah. Are you still together? No. Oh, uh, lesson, lesson. <laughs> she went back to Germany. I came back to Chicago. She sent me 12 letters in less than a month, one of which was 18 pages. And in the last letter, she said goodbye. Oh, but you didn't actually get married then? No, we didn't get married. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you got married. But you proposed to her, so you were ready to get married to her. But this is Listunvarna, and Listunvarna, of all places in Europe, is famous as the site of the matchmaking festival. Correct. And you didn't know that? When I proposed to her in Lyftenvarn, I did not know about the matchmaking festival, but I found out about it later. There must be something in the water or the air or the beer in Lyftenvarn then. Yeah. All right, Craig. Hey, thanks for your call, and I'll think of you next time I'm on the literary tour in Dublin. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye now. We're getting listener reports of great travel memories right now on Travel with Rick Steves. If you'd like to join us on a future edition of the show, look into the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. 
That's where you'll find instructions for getting on our email list so you can be notified of future recording sessions. And Ray's on the phone in Ocala, Florida. Ray, thanks for your call. Hi. Do you have some thoughts on on turning serendipity into a a happy travel memory? Last summer, I had a chance to backpack through Europe by myself, basically. And the last place I stopped off was Athens. And the most vivid memory that I can think of is sunset on Mars Hill in Athens during the summer. And as the sun melts into the mountains, its rays just seem to spill out like wax onto the city. Hmm. Just sort of painting the city in gold. It is the most magical moment. Then as the night slowly comes, the Acropolis lights up from above. And then in the distance, I don't know if it's like the smog of the city, or, but it just causes the, the city lights to actually twinkle in the night. Wow. So you have, you have this complete drama unfolding during sunset on Mars Hill. It's Ray, let's set the physical uh, scene here. First of all, that's a very shiny rock hill. I mean, the rocks are shiny. Do you remember how shiny they are? Yeah, and it's actually pretty slippery, so you got to be really slippery. careful. Very dangerous, and you got the hordes of tourists that have been um, hiking up and down to the Acropolis to your right. to your right, and then below you on your left, you've got the the old Greek agora, five hundred years ago. That was the center of the city, five hundred years before Christ. Right, and then you've got sprawling out in all directions like a white concrete rash. Four million Greeks in their metropolis, Athens, and then you got that hazy, smog-induced kind of rosy uh, atmosphere at sunset. And then you're standing on a place that has a lot of history for Christians. Do you know the importance of Mars Hill that way? Right. I, I've actually, I, I actually read that passage in Acts where Paul actually spoke to the Athenians for the first time, and it's just really just surreal to think of the, just to get the geographical context in which he spoke that. So think about that. Paul was the great missionary, the great traveler, spreading the news of this little tiny unknown religion. And he went to Thessalonica, and he wrote then later a letter to the Thessalonians, right? And then he went to Corinth, and he wrote a letter to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians. And he went to Athens, and he tried to talk the Athenians into becoming Christians, and I don't think he did very well. (laughs) But he stood on that hill, and he gave it his best effort. And 2,000 years later, a lot of Christian travelers go there as a kind of pilgrimage, and a lot of just travelers go there to soak in the magic of Athens at twilight. Absolutely. What's ironic is the fact that I think the street, the main drag that is named after one of the people that actually was converted during that time when he spoke, I think it's the Dionysio. Yeah, that used to be just a scary, dangerous slum, and now it's been uh, gentrified and cutesied up, and now it's a beautiful, paved, strolling pedestrian boulevard circling the Acropolis. And you can see the, the sprawl of the city, the historic Acropolis, the rosy sky, and you're standing on that shiny rock just like St. Paul did 2,000 years ago. Absolutely magical. I didn't, I didn't want to leave. Ray, thank you for your call. That is really a good image. Thank you for having me. All right, bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to the technical staff at Radio-Canada in Montreal and to Mississippi Public Broadcasting in Jackson for their help this week. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find guest information, search the show archives, and listen again on demand. Take a look each week in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. 
This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.